0: Welcome to the latest Sophos Podcast, I'm Chester Wisniewski, and I'm here this week with Mr. Paul Bacchus, who's a senior threat researcher in our United Kingdom labs, and Paul recently wrote a paper called, A Time-Based Analysis of Rich Text Format Manipulations. And for people that uh, maybe don't spend as much time in a virus lab as myself and Paul and others, we thought we'd uh, put this podcast together to spend a few minutes to kind of explain Paul's research and what we can learn from that to better secure our environments. Welcome, Paul. Hi. Chat. So in your paper about uh, rich text format manipulations, uh, maybe you can give us a brief summary of sort of uh, what the rich text format file format is and, and what, uh, what products might be impacted by it, t- you know, what type of environments um, utilize the rich text format file uh, type.
1: Uh, well, rich text uh, is one of those funny file formats in that back in the day when uh, we first got hit with uh, macro viruses, Uh, We were told to save our files as rich text files. So people probably will be aware of the RTF file extension. Uh, Not all files with an RTF file extension are actually rich text file formats, but the majority are. And if you were to look at them in Notepad rather than WordPad or Word, you would s- normally see that the files start with curly brace and have the letters RTF very near the beginning of the file.
0: So they're, they're very complicated. Uh, they're basically glorified text files that have some additional formatting capabilities and this type of thing so that they don't just look like plain letters.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. And they can be created by WordPad or Via Word.
0: Right, but I mean, they must have some more capability than just things like uh, explaining the font. Then, if there's a, if there's something to be learned for security purposes here, because obviously we know that plain ASCII text files, unless there's some sort of script or something, are genuinely benign, right? They only contain eight-bit ASCII characters. So, what what makes RTF different, or, or you know, how how can it be exploited?
1: RTF can embed packages or embeds other things. So you can still have a picture within an RTF it will just be it will just look very strange in the raw file but you can have a picture you can have an exe in the file or you could have other rich embedded files applications so you can have nearly all the richness that you have with words or html uh, in an rtf file so embedded pictures embedded other files links to other files uh, links to websites, etc. And there have been a number of RTF issues in the past, probably not more than we can count on our hands, uh, but that doesn't mean that they're completely safe files. And what was interesting about the exploit that I was looking at is that Microsoft released a patch in November 2009, and we didn't start seeing files exploiting the vulnerability until after the patch was released.
0: Right, and that's not uh, atypical of a lot of things. I mean, sometimes we do see proof of concept stuff in the wild, a, a true zero day where somebody may be using something before Microsoft patches it. But if we look at some of the most common uh, generic things that have been spreading for the last few years, like Conficker, for example, yeah, there was something in the wild right before Microsoft released the patch. But the reality is Conficker itself didn't you know, hit until six, eight weeks after Microsoft had fixed it. And that's when we started seeing mass exploitation, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And the the media likes your zero day. Security researchers like to talk about a zero day. But a significant proportion of the exploits that we see are exploits for patch software and they're taking advantage of the fact that people don't patch immediately they may have a window of patching they may never patch they may just not know they should be patching
0: well and the behavior we're seeing here i guess is indicative of that paul cuz you know this is uh, as you said it's ms10-087 so you know end of 2009 and yet you know based on the charts i'm looking at here in the in the paper you wrote uh, we haven't really seen any slowdown or hiccup in the use of it by by criminals exploiting it, right? I mean, we're we're now two years down the road, and we're still seeing it being used consistently.
1: Exactly. I mean, within the paper, we're looking at a period of just over 300 days, um, from mid-December 2010 to November uh, 2011. And if I look at our systems for stats now, I will still see one or two files coming in. Over the, that period, we saw an average of five samples a day.
0: So that's that's really a, a clear sign that this still works or they wouldn't be iterating on it as well. Because I guess when you're seeing these samples, many of them are uh, slightly different and keep changing, right? They're trying to avoid detection by vendors.
1: They're trying to avoid detection by antivirus vendors, um, IDS vendors. Yeah, they're just... They're just tweaking their code, um, often not in big ways, but sometimes in quite surprising ways.
0: Uh, You also, in the paper, kind of went through some correlations to uh, example code found in Metasploit, and you found quite a bit of correlation, at least in some of the uh, ways that these guys were crafting these malicious files. Could you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, effectively, there are two types of this exploit. There's a type 1 that looks like the original Metasploit code, and then there's a type 2 that came after type 1, and there's no framework that I know of that makes this. So this is an independent type, and, and there may be some underground framework or underground version of Metasploit that's not publicly available that's making this. But a lot of the files do look like, uh, superficially, like they are being made by the Metasploit package. And those files, we're still seeing them coming in. They didn't all come in at the beginning of this period. They were spread through the periods of the
0: sample set. So to a degree, this could just be lazy hackers. They don't really understand the exploit itself. They go grab... Uh, a sample uh, payload from something like Metasploit, and then they pull out the you know the the uh, the actual action part of it and replace it with whichever thing that they want.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, drilling down numbers, the type one, the original type, about a third of those files look like they're based on part of it on the Metasploit package. But of the type two files, where there was no framework, more than sixty percent look to be based on uh, the Metasploit package so nearly 70% of those. Then there is some variance, but most of the variance in the files happens away from the actual exploit bit. It's in other parts of the file. In the header of the file, in the size of the file, in the structure of the file, away from the exploit. So you're right, it looks like people are, are fuzzing and changing the bits that aren't required um, in the file for the exploit to run.
0: So it's, they're, they're using Metasploit as a template largely, and then the pieces that are insignificant, they're changing, hoping that trips up antivirus and IDS vendors.
1: Yeah, that's what I suspect is happening. Uh,
0: another thing that um, when we talked uh, earlier uh, before the podcast that you mentioned, what what kind of environments are you know, what type of payloads, where are we seeing this? I mean, it's clear, it's not a worm, right? It's not spreading and attacking some network vulnerability. It's, no. a, it's a rich I text mean, file, so... Uh,
1: A lot of these files are coming in, and if if I look at um, the files we're getting from uh, sites like VirusTotal, they're coming in with the name invoice, or a date and word invoice in it. Sometimes they're the word invoice in another language. I had a discussion um, in December, I was at Sands London, and somebody was saying that they were testing their own security, and they sent in... An RTF file with this exploit was detected by the antivirus to their CEO, just to see if it got through, and the file did get through. It was caught by their antivirus, it's just that the system admin saw that it was going to the CEO, and saw that it was named invoice in the language of the thing, and released it to the CEO because it was going to the CEO.
0: And just assumed it was a false positive. Yeah. So the social engineering aspect, uh, it's not just always the the intended victim that can play into that. It's even the IT people who think they know better.
1: Yeah, no. I mean, the two of us have been in the industry long enough that we've met those um, IT people. Fortunately, there's not that many of them but some people think they know
0: more. Absolutely. So I guess the, t- the takeaways from, from your research are really that this obsession with Zero Day that so many people have, and obviously it's, uh, it's sort of like APT and all these other things. When you go to conferences and you meet with customers or prospects or people that are just simply interested in security, all the conversation seems to be around, um, you know, what can you do to prevent Zero Day this? What can you pre- do to stop APTs? You know, all these types of things when the reality is, uh, you know, we're doing such a bad job at patching and things that these two year two and a half year i guess for this one now year old exploits are are still apparently effective and still being utilized in targeted attacks and and they're counting on the fact that uh we're lazy or not doing our patching i guess right
1: yeah i mean it, it's it's difficult from the, the security researchers point of view is because nobody wants to talk about something that everybody knows already everybody knows really that people need to patch And how do you show that people need to patch? Well, you do a lot of research about something that's already patched. You're more likely to get into a conference or present a paper if you talk about something that's not being patched. And therefore, the media is more likely to pick up on it. So the whole media and conference system is asking people to talk about unpatched things. But actually, when we look at the raw data, we see most of the files that are exploited coming into our labs have actually been patched or or can be patched. The vendor has issued a patch for the vulnerability and if you have applied the patch you're safe. One of the other bits of interesting information I I got out of the SANS course was talking about the Department of Defence 20 critical controls and the Australian Government's 35 critical controls and both of them are very heavy on patching. The Australian Government's DSD suggests you patch within 48 hours of the patch becoming available. I did make a point uh, when this information was told to me that that may be okay for defense companies, but in the real world, in corporates, they're probably not going to be able to have the mandate to push out a patch within 48 hours they've got to do testing on all their legacy systems. They've got to do testing to make sure that the sales system still works.
0: Yeah, of course, Paul. And of course a lot of companies or enterprises at the end of quarter have issues with uh, you know, end of quarter, end of year, change controls around Christmas time, this kind of thing. But I'm starting to advise people that some of these policies are quite ridiculous to be honest. Uh, the, The risk of shutting down critical systems from a patch from Microsoft or Adobe is almost zero. And the risk that you take from getting infected from this malware is quite large, so you really need to be cautious in in how you approach these kinds of things like patching. But really appreciate you coming on to share your paper with us and explain it in a little more detail. Uh, That concludes this Sophos podcast. As always, for the latest security news, you can read nakedsecurity.sophos.com. All podcasts are available via iTunes on RSS and at podcasts.sophos.com. And until next time, stay secure.